In what's been seen as an attempt to thaw frosty relations between the two countries, the new Chinese ambassador, Xian Chao, yesterday acknowledged the difficulties that existed in the relationship, but harked back to a time when relations were better. Here's a little of what he had to say. China's policy of a friendly cooperation towards Australia remains unchanged. This year marks the 15th anniversary of the diplomatic relations between China and Australia. It is hoped that... Uh, our Australian co- colleagues, especially this new Liberal government, could join us to make a concerted efforts by moving towards each other, by taking concrete actions, by adhering to the principle of mutual respect and mutual benefit, so as to bring our bilateral relationship back on the right track. And that was the Chinese ambassador, Xia Xian talking at the Australia-China Research Institute yesterday. The incoming Albanese government is attempting to stabilise and reset the relationship, but is making it clear it won't compromise to achieve their diplomatic aim. So how can Australia and its allies walk the tightrope of maintaining diplomatic relations and trade with China while continuing to contain its ambitions with Taiwan and the South China Sea? And what lessons from history can help inform the decisions we we make. Well, joining me to discuss the key issues is Greg Sheridan, foreign editor at The Australian. Hi, Catherine. Now, the ambassador could have chosen not to accept the invitation to speak yesterday, but he did. What does that say in itself? Well, I think it's been obvious from the time he arrived, he's playing the good cop in the relationship. And um, I always thought that uh, there would come a point where Beijing would simply decide um to end the period of punishment. I mean, that's that's what it does with other nations. It doesn't really matter much what you do yourself. They just sort of, they punish you for a number of years and then they think they've done enough of that. They want to do some other things. They've got a few bilateral interests to pursue with you and so on. So then they, they more or less turn the punishment off. Um, so I think this is uh, promising. There are some serious limitations and some serious traps, but... I think the Albanese government will want to uh, get a more professional, calm, normal tone in the relationship and manage bilateral things in the normal way uh, uh, when it when it can. Mm. So do you see those trade restrictions lifting in the near term then? Well, what he said about that was extremely interesting. He said, there are no trade restrictions. Mm. Apparently, we've just been imagining it. He said, all that happened was that some Chinese consumers and and presumably some traders, had their feelings hurt by Australia's actions and therefore decided not to buy Australian products. But he said there's no policy by the Chinese government imposing a trade ban or anything like that. Now, of course, that is complete and absolute baloney. Mm. However, it indicates the way the trade bans will end. Just as the uh, Beijing government didn't announce the imposition of the trade bans, so it won't announce the lifting of the trade bans, partly because uh, the Chinese Communist Party government can never admit that it got anything wrong or even that it's making a course correction of itself. So just as mysteriously the Australian exports couldn't get through, one day mysteriously they'll start to get through. So that was very encouraging. It involved, of course, what you might regard as the sort of characteristic communist fantasy. You know, Milan Kundera said communism was the the kingdom of the kitsch. Well, it's also the kingdom of of kind of fantasy 
reality, you know. Mm. So, uh, but nonetheless, it's encouraging as far as it goes. Mm, I'm sure those wine, lobster, barley exporters would be happy to hear that. And when, yes. when, when you take the speech in a holistic manner, do you think that this was a genuine attempt by China to reset the relationship? And what was the message the ambassador was trying to convey? Because he did, whilst outlining the recent years of the relationship had been difficult, that China's policy of friendly cooperation towards Australia has remained unchanged. Well, I tell you what, if this constitutes friendly cooperation, I'd hate to see when they're being unfriendly. <laughs> yeah. um, and what, know, what is uh, the definition of friendly, right? Uh, never never the yeah. twain shall meet, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's only a couple of weeks ago, since the election of the Albanese government, that they sent a fourth-generation jet fighter to intercept one of our maritime surveillance aircraft in international airspace um, and flash straight in front of it in an extremely dangerous manoeuvre, release flares, which make navigation of our aircraft difficult, and then release chaff, which is meant to sort of um, draw off missile fire, but that chaff uh, was absorbed into the Australian engines, which created danger of a crash. So if that's the Chinese definition of friendly friendly cooperation. I'd, I'd hate to see them when they're in a bad mood. Mm. But I think the key to understanding this, Catherine, is that uh, there are two levels in operation here, two quite separate levels. Uh, and Australia needs to be aware of both of them and navigate both of them well. One is the day-to-day manage of routine, the day-to-day management of routine um, bilateral relations diplomacy. Now, the Chinese have been beating up on us across the board over the last few years. I think they're clearly indicating through the ambassador that they're willing to go back to a more normal relationship. Now, one odd thing he said, there has to be concrete actions by the Australian government. So we don't know exactly what that means. Mm. And, and um, if I can just ask you, what do you mean by by normal? Is, is that just uh, go back to something that's more transactional, say? Well, it's always transactional. Any relationship with the Chinese Communist Party is entirely transactional. Mm. But there are many elements of abnormality about the relationship now. So our ministers have not had a, a phone call returned for years. We we can have no ministerial dialogue. I mean, we had the big breakthrough when Defence Minister Richard Miles met his Chinese counterpart in Singapore at the Shanghai Strategic Dialogue. But similarly, our ambassador, you know, the Chinese ambassador at Australia had to put up with a couple of... Um, good-hearted protesters at his lecture today. That's a great sign of Australian democracy. But the Australian ambassador in China doesn't get to talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, No officials talk to him. No think tank figures talk to him. But there is a second level, which is the deep strategic hostility and competition which Beijing government has for Australia and the United States and Western allies uh, generally. So they want us to ask for permission when we transit through the South China Sea, we're not going to do that. They want to have military bases in the South Pacific. We're going to try to stop them from getting those. They want to chase the Americans out of the region, chase the American military out of the region. We're America's most intimate ally, and it's an object of our policy to keep the Americans fully engaged militarily in the region. They want to have a military option against Taiwan. We don't want them to take military action against Taiwan. So at at this great big structural level, there is an ongoing conflict and contradiction between <clears throat> China and Australia, which isn't affected 
by these little uh, initiatives. And and that puts Australia in an incredibly difficult position, doesn't it? Um, I, I know you quoted in an article earlier this week, Mike Green, who's the new head of the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, who recently travelled to Taiwan on behalf of the Biden administration. He believes Beijing wants a sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific and in certain aspects more widely internationally. Um, I'll quote, China wants a situation in which no country in the Indo-Pacific can make any move on diplomacy, technology or with the military, which contradicts China's core interests. I mean, that goes to the heart of what you're speaking about there. But where does that leave Australia? Where does that leave the government when it's bargaining, negotiating with China? Well, I think we do. You're absolutely right, Catherine. We're in a very difficult position. But many, many nations are in a very difficult position with China. Uh, Sri Lanka is in the crisis it's in now, partly because of the loans it took out from China. South Korea and Japan are in constant difficulty with China. Canada had its citizens uh, subject to hostage diplomacy and recently had its, its aircraft interfered with and intercepted in the same way that Australia had, and so on and so on. So lots of nations in our region and lots of nations in the world have the same set of difficulties with China that we have. But where does it leave us? It leaves us in strategic competition, but desiring nonetheless as normal and constructive a relationship as possible. So Prime Minister Albanese has um, appropriated the phrase which he got, I think, partly from Kurt Campbell, which is that we seek competition without catastrophe. Mm. So we understand that there is strategic competition. We have to face that honestly. So one of the traps in this little warming period of relations would be if we overstated what we can achieve politically. So we, we need to be friendly and polite and honour Chinese culture and all the rest of it, but we can't pretend that we're like-minded nations or that, that we have a new you know, intimate relationship or anything like that. As long as we operate at those two levels, trying to be calm and productive as much as we can, but continuing to participate in the strategic competition because that embodies our vital national interests, we're okay as long as we can operate fully on those two levels. Mm. Do you see China as having any limitations to its strategic ambitions? And how do you see the times with respect to war? Hugh White was saying in a recent piece in The Conversation that the risk of war is probably higher than the government realises because China is harder to deter than they understand. Would you agree with that? No, I don't think the government has a lesser understanding than Hugh White on these matters. I think all of our intelligence agencies and our diplomatic establishment and all the rest of it understands this stuff just as well as Hugh White does. Um, the risk of war, though, is real. Mike Green, in the article I said, I, I, um, I interviewed him, he said uh, he thought the risk of war on the Taiwan Strait, but in the Taiwan Strait, was low, but getting higher every day. The question you ask, though, Catherine, is really the $64 million question. <laughs> what is the limit of China's strategic ambition? Mm. The truth is, we don't know. Perhaps neither do the Chinese know because they may be more improvisational, more suck it and see than we think. I mean, they they pushed forward initially with great caution in the South China Sea in the time of the Obama presidency. They encountered no resistance from the Obama presidency whatsoever. So then they, they rushed forward 
reclaimed all those islands, built a whole lot of artificial islands, promised they'd never militarise them, and then militarised them all. Uh, Richard Miles said the other day that the Chinese have engaged in the greatest peacetime military build-up we've seen since World War II, and it is an astonishing military build-up. They now have the biggest navy in the world. They're rapidly increasing the nuclear weapons that they possess. All of their military strategy has been designed to um, hurt the Americans in the Pacific if there are ever hostilities. Uh, Greg, finally, if I can ask you, what lessons from history can inform where we go now? I think there are several lessons from history. Um, Each situation is unique and history never repeats itself, but it often rhymes. One lesson is that deterrence was effective in the Cold War. So we never fell in love with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union never fell in love with us. We never were really friends or anything. We could never bridge the strategic competition. But we found ways of managing potential conflict with, you know, military confidence-building measures and so on, and deterrence was effective. So the Chinese, like the Russians in the Cold War, generally are not irrational uh, actors at all. They're very, very rational actors. And although their appetite for risk has increased, they are nonetheless quite conscious of risk and quite averse to unreasonable risks. Um, Japan and Australia are increasing their defence budgets, key allies of the United States, so is South Korea. If you can have a system of deterrence which shows to Beijing the cost of military action is simply too great and too unpredictable, then you can probably have a long period of uncomfortable coexistence. It's not the sunlit uplands of beautiful international liberalism and cooperation, but uncomfortable coexistence is infinitely better than violent conflict. Mm. And uh, so I think you want to work towards that system of stable stable deterrence, as Albanese puts it, competition without, uh, without catastrophe. Mm. Well, so much more to play out in this space. Uh, Greg, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Catherine. A real delight to talk to you. And that was Greg Sheridan there, the foreign editor at The Australian. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.